on the one hand, I'm uh, very grateful to be here and to enjoy the benefits of this camp. On the other hand, I'm scared stiff to be up here. <laughs> but I'll try and overcome that. Um, I want to talk about something that uh, affects all of us one way or another, and that is preparation. All of us, from time to time, prepare for things. There must have been an incredible amount of work going into the preparation of this camp and other camps. And uh, it, it just shows the dedication and, and the willingness of people in the Lord to help to prepare such a camp for uh, so many people to come together to hear the word of the Lord and to be benefited by it. At home, the, uh, most of the work I do, in fact all the work I do is classified as high risk. It might take us three days to a week to plan for a small job. Might take us up to two weeks to plan for a medium-sized job. We've just started a job over this last couple of months that's taken us eight months in the planning stage and the preparation stage. And the reason I say that is because planning and preparation can mean the difference between success and failure. That's the difference that it can make. Between success and failure depends on how well you plan and prepare something. And I just wanted to consider this um, tonight, uh, today uh, in relation to our salvation. So if we can turn to First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 22, and we'll start off here. We read here about King David. And I'll start from verse 3. And David prepared in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gates and of the joinings, and the brass in abundance without weight, also cedar trees in, in abundance for the Zidonians, and they of the Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said to Solomon, My son is yet young and tender, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent. I like that word, exceeding magnificent, this house that they were going to build for the Lord. Of fame and glory throughout all the countries, I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. So we read here of the conditions of David. David wanted to build this house, but God said, no, you can't build it. David, your son will build it because you are a man of war and you shed blood. And uh, it was given to, to Solomon to build the house. And David prepared for this house with all his might before his death. And I think that's important. I don't believe anything is written in the word by accident. You can't prepare for anything when you're dead. You must prepare for what's going to happen in your life while you're alive. And I believe that's very important when it comes to our salvation and our walk in the Lord. The preparation must occur now and has to occur now because later on when, think, when we pass away, things are too far too late for that to happen. We turn to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 1. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 1. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, I'm not so worried about the second part of that verse, but the, the first part of that verse says, the preparations of the heart in man is from the Lord. So the first thing that happens when we get saved is that God prepares us 
for his kingdom. And what he does is, the Bible tells us that the heart of man is evil and, uh, and desperately wicked and who can know it? And so God takes out that heart of stone, he puts within a heart of flesh, a heart of flesh that is soft, that is pliable, that will respond, that will keep his word, that will uphold that word, and that is all done by the power of God. And what we see happening in the world today is because they've rejected God's word, they reject God's ways and everything that goes with it. And uh, in order for man to do the will and purpose of God in this life, we must be prepared by the Lord to have our hearts changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. If we go to Hebrews chapter 8, and I'm probably rushing things a little bit because of that big thing up the back there that's intimidating, but we won't worry about that for the minute. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, and we read here, "...who serve unto the example and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that they make, they make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount." So God went to quite some extent here to instruct Moses, to warn Moses, to reprimand Moses. That's what the word admonished means. He wasn't to change anything. He was to make sure that what he did was according to what God said, according to the pattern. And uh, God has a pattern for everything in our lives. The first and greatest pattern is the pattern for salvation, and we all know what that is. And then God told Moses about the pattern for the tabernacle. God has a pattern for man's life. God gave us the Ten Commandments, and, how, and if we lived by those commandments, how blessed we would be. God has a pattern for marriage. God has a pattern for aged men. God has a pattern for aged women. God has a pattern for young men. God has a pattern for young women. God has a pattern for bringing up children. And what have we done today? What happens in this land today? They ignore all of God's patterns. They have let things slip. If we go to Hebrews chapter 2 for a minute, and we read here in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So God gives us warning here. He tells us not to let anything slip. God admonished Moses, don't change anything. Do it according to the pattern. That's why God has given us his word. That's why God has taken out the heart of stone. That's why God has put within us a heart of flesh that will respond totally to his word and that, and won't change it and that we won't let things slip. We see this in this world today, a disgraceful situation. And I don't stand back from saying that because this world, this nation in which we live once had an awareness and a knowledge of God and God's word and we meant most of our laws on the Bible. And what have we done today? We have changed those laws that we set up and we accept as normal the things that God calls an abomination. And that's how much this nation has let things slip. And I see that the calling of the church is to not let anything slip, but to uphold God's word in every aspect and every sense. Because this world, if we go the way of this world and let things slip to the extent that this world has there will be no salvation for us, there will be no blessing in it, and uh, there will be no wonderful event that is about to happen for us 
because as David, uh, as Solomon rather, built that temple for the Lord, that was a, a forerunner, that was an example of what God himself is going to do. We are on the verge of God setting up his kingdom, his will, his um, um, house upon this earth. We are on the verge of that happening. And those things that we read in the Old Testament were there for examples unto us upon whom the ends of the age have come. And God has called us to uphold his word because we see in the world today how they have let the word of God slip so badly that a lot of what happens in the world today happens as normal and God calls a lot of it an abomination. And I could stand here and mention all the things, but I have no intention of doing that today because um, for time of one thing, and I'm sure that you know them all anyway. But I just want to illustrate something here, if I can. If we go back to Second Samuel for a moment, Second Samuel, and I want to try, if I can, to uh, try to illustrate what I'm getting at here. Second Samuel, chapter six. Second Samuel chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to read the whole story because of time, but I'm just going to pick out a verse here. This was the time when the children of Israel had sinned against God and God allowed the Philistines to come against them and the Philistines won and they took the Ark of the Covenant captive. And this was the time when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the camp of Israel. And uh, they were singing, there was dancing, there was music, there was joy and things were running along quite well. And we read in verse 6, And when they came to the nation, uh, to Nathan's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, and the, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. So here were the children of Israel. Their motives were good. They were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the camp of Israel, but their methods were wrong, and God smote Uzzah. God wanted to remind the children of Israel, sometimes the event doesn't altogether, sometimes we can, we can look at the event and sometimes miss the big picture. And there was a big picture here. God had given strict instruction as to how the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried, and it wasn't to be put on a new cart. It wasn't to be put on any cart. It was to be put on people's shoulders. It was to have staves put through the rings and carried. And here they were bringing this Ark of the Covenant back into the camp of Israel. And yeah, their motives were good, but their methods were wrong. They'd let something slip. They'd changed something. And God said, no, we're not going to have it that way. And that's something that this world has to learn. Even though man wants to change things to suit himself, and uh, suit his own convenience and all the rest and accept things that God calls an abomination, God will not accept it. God will have none of it. God has put in his word what he wants. He has a pattern. It will not change. It's a pattern for man's salvation. It's a pattern for eternity. And God has will not change the words that have gone out of his mouth. So if we go from here to John chapter 2, we read here in verse 13. And we read here, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found the temp- the, found in the temple all the, those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and jonges of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money, the changes' money, and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, 
Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. So what had happened here is that they'd changed things. They'd let something slip. And Jesus sat down. This wasn't a, a knee-jerk reaction by Jesus. This was, uh, this was controlled discipline where he sat down, he made a scourge of small cords and he used it to drive them out of the temple. And why did he do that? Because they had changed what God had organised as far as his temple was concerned. God said in Matthew, he said in Mark and he says in Luke that his house was to be called the house of prayer. God's house is a house of worship and they'd let something slip and Jesus was not going to accept it. Jesus was there to uphold his father's word. Jesus was there to make sure that what was done was done in accordance with the pattern that God had laid down. And, and, and um, unfortunately we see today in many incidences that a lot of things that are happening in this world are not according to God's word, they're not according to God's pattern and people are changing things to suit themselves and the job of the church is to uphold the word of God in every respect. And to be, and to be zealous to do it. Because we read there in the Bible, and I don't think I read the scripture actually, but it's there, where God, where Jesus said, the zeal of my father's house has eaten me up. Jesus was zealous to keep the word of God. He was zealous to keep his father's will and purpose and to do what God had asked to be done. And he was zealous to do that. And I believe that's the calling of the church, to be zealous to uphold God's word. If we go to John chapter 4 for a minute, I'll try and point out why this is so important. John chapter 4 and verse 23. And it says here, but the hour cometh. What hour is that that's coming? The hour that is coming is when Jesus sets up his kingdom here on earth. When he sets up his home, his house, his temple, whatever you want to describe it as or call it. When he sets it up here on earth, we are on the verge of that hour happening. And it says here, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipper, God, God actually defines the worshippers here. He says the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to serve him. So God is looking, sorry, to worship him. God is looking for uh, those that will worship him according to his Holy Spirit so that he can lead, he can guide, he can mould, he can bless, he can show them his will, he can show them his pattern, he can show them what he requires, and God is calling a people, the true worshippers, to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is not looking for Clayton's worshippers. I don't know if you remember what that was, but years ago they had a an ad on the television and uh, it, they had a drink and they called it a Clayton's drink. And it was the drink you were having when you weren't having a drink. It was a Clayton's drink. And that's what God is looking for, not looking for. God is looking for true worshippers. He's not looking for those that uh, won't worship him according to his will and according to his way. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If we go to Romans chapter 10 for a second, and we, re re when we read here, sorry, in verse 2, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And that speaks of this nation. Yes, they might have a zeal of God. They might have some uh, uh, motives as far as worshipping God goes, but it's not according to the knowledge of the word. And God won't accept it because what they've done here, 
we read about what they've done here, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So they have overlooked totally the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross and to shed his blood and to clothe us with a robe of righteousness. And what they offer up to God today is their own righteousness. And God calls man's righteousness filthy rags in his sight. And you can read that in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 if you like. But if man offers up God his own to God, his own righteousness, he is offering up in type filthy rags to God and God will not accept what man offers when God has sent his son to die on the cross to shed his blood, to wash us clean and to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. Why should God accept man's filthy rags when God has gone to all that trouble to save man upon the earth and to save him for his kingdom? And God is right at this point in time now preparing people for that kingdom. He is preparing the hearts of true worshippers and he won't accept anything less he won't accept anything less than what his word declares and what his word says. If we go over to Matthew chapter 7 for a minute, verse 21 and 22, it says here, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and have we not in thy name cast out devils, and in, in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I, w- I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And that's the difference between true worshippers and worshippers who offer up their own righteousness to God. So, time, I, I don't know whether I can't read the time or whether that's not right, but anyway... Um, <laughs> Uh, we'll just finish up quickly and then we'll go to Luke chapter 22 for a minute. I want to throw something else into the mix here um, and you can rebuke me for it later if you like, but anyway, um, I think it's worth noting. Everything that Jesus did in the Bible, he did as an example for us upon whom the ends of the age have come. So we read here in Luke chapter 22 and verse 41. Luke chapter 22 and verse 41. And it's speaking here of Jesus. And it says here, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. He kneeled down and prayed. And I want you to think about that. We are not to let anything slip. We should never be afraid to kneel down to pray. Look, I know God can bless you standing up. God can bless you as you sit down. God can worship you anywhere at any time. But what was the example that Jesus gave? He kneeled down to pray. And I believe it's important for the church to uphold everything God has said and everything God has done. That's the calling of the church. That's what true worshippers do. We do what the Lord Jesus Christ has done by way of example. We could look in Acts of where Paul kneeled down to pray. And I just want to finish in John chapter 14 because I'm quite sure I've actually stoned the clock. Um, Luke, uh, sorry, John chapter 14, and I'll finish here. And we read here, John chapter 14, 
and verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That's what Jesus is doing right at this time, right now. The hour cometh. We are on the verge of the Lord establishing his kingdom here on earth. And he is preparing that king for that kingdom now. He is preparing true worshippers for that kingdom now. And it says here, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. God will establish his kingdom here on earth and the true worshippers will be part of that kingdom. 